Hello? Are we on? Yes? Hi, good morning everyone. Um, and yeah, thank you um, so much. Great to hear about um, what's going on. I hope you're enjoying um, and finding really beneficial our month of prayer as um, our family of churches um, this month. We're about halfway through it. And um, this message um, hopefully will be encouragement to us as we continue to pray um, during this month. To start with, I would like you to think about your day-to-day life with God. What are the things that help you to follow Jesus, to grow in your knowledge, your love of him? Basically, the key practices of being a disciple of Jesus. Or if you're not a Christian, basically, what do you think Christians do? Uh, Now, you don't need to answer, but around the room, I imagine there will be a few common things in people's minds. Perhaps prayer, hopefully prayers come to mind, worship, reading scripture, all really important, beautiful things, um, gifts to us. And we've done all three this morning. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, Jesus zooms in on three key practices that were like bread and butter of the Jewish faith, the Jewish way of following God. And he teaches that those three things will be key habits that his followers will do. Um, So this is the list of three. Um, The first one is giving. You might think, great, yeah, that makes sense. Prayer is the second. Absolutely, check. I thought, yep, can do that. (laughs) And then the third one, he says, is fasting. And if I take a step back and look at that and look at that list, there is one that's not like the others there for me, because I would not say that fasting is a key habit in my life, in my following of Jesus. So here's what he says, Matthew 6, um, and starting at verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father, who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So, Jesus expects that we will fast. And the first three words, really, of this passage today could be enough challenge for one morning. When you fast. Not if you fast. When you fast. These words, when kind of I was looking at this passage, they were a challenge to me. Because if there's something that Jesus himself assumes that I will do, and I hardly think about it, it's safe to assume that I'm missing out So since uh, preparing for this, looking at fasting in the book of Matthew, I've begun to ask the question, what am I missing out on by not holding fasting more highly in my discipleship of Jesus? And it struck me as well that I had been neglecting something that wasn't just something Jesus told us we would do, but was an important practice in his own life as well. Before Jesus did any teaching or miracles, 
he chose to fast. Jesus, the perfect human, needed to fast. But my assumption is that I don't need to. John Piper says, if he who was the light of the world fought for his fire with fasting, is there something to be learned here for our flickering wicks? My response to this was, yes, yes, I think there is. But I'm not sure what it is. Because to be honest, fasting was a bit of a mystery to me. And I have come to the conclusion that because I didn't really understand it, I've not taken it very seriously in my own life. I've always loved that we fast regularly as a church and um, as a family of churches, that it's a key part of um, the way Grace Connection does church together, times of prayer and fasting. I've loved that um, ever since I came to Grace Church when I was a student. I was like, this is new. And um, I've looked forward to those times together. <clears throat> I would not say I always looked forward to the fasting. Uh, every time that I decided I would participate in the, um, the fasting aspect, instantly, my heart in its weakness, um, I would try and look for an excuse, maybe like trying to get out of PE. <laughs> um, like, oh, you know, I've got exams on, or it's, oh, it's a really busy time at work, I need to focus. I was maybe going to do my first workout of the year that week, so... <laughs> because fasting's hard, right? And to be honest, I just wasn't quite sure why I was doing it to myself. In um, Pirates of the Caribbean, yep, that's right, keeping my preach analogies current. <laughs> in Pirates of the Caribbean, there's this scene where two pirates are in a boat, and for reasons that I don't have time to go into right now, um, they were immortal, but now they're mortal. <laughs> and then one of them's reading the Bible, and he's saying, well, we need to look after our immortal souls now that we're mortal. And the other guy says, well, you can't read. <laughs> and then he says, well, it's the Bible. You get credit for trying. <laughs> and to be honest, that was pretty much my attitude for fasting. Not sure why I'm doing this. Don't really know what it's doing, but hopefully I'll get credit for trying. So what we're going to do today is explore why we might fast. Because when lunchtime comes around and there's still some Christmas Lindor in the cupboard, I need to be convinced that there is meaning in my voluntary suffering. Not just the benefit of having more time to pray or somehow it will help me focus on God. I want to know the purpose, the story. How is fasting helping me participate in a grand mystery? So that's what I decided to explore. Here's what I learned first. There's this whole bunch of reasons that why people fast in the Old Testament. So that's before Jesus comes along, the people of God. So all these examples of why people would choose to fast. Here are just a few examples that I've picked. Um, to ask God for protection in a time of danger. To seek God's guidance in a time of uncertainty. To express grief in a time of loss to seek deliverance from enemies, to express repentance and returning to God in a time of conviction. Now, what trend do we see in all of these examples? Broadly, in each of them, fasting is happening when something is not okay. Yeah? None of these are in celebration <laughs> or um, 
to say, well, what a great thing has happened. These are all situations where things are not okay. Something not good was happening, and fasting was like a crying out, a heart response of godly men and women to seek God in those situations. In the New Testament, in John 9, Jesus explains why Christians will fast. And just as throughout the Old Testament, what he says is that we will fast because something is not okay. This is what he says, Matthew 9, 14 to 15. <clears throat> then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. He was talking about his disciples sitting around the table with him, but he was also talking about us sitting in this room. Imagine what it would have been like to be with Jesus at that table, to be one of the disciples, to have been living your normal life as a fisherman or collecting taxes, but then swept up into his inner circle of friendship and teaching to be with him once the crowds left, to have breakfast with him, to pray with him, to have felt that being with him was like your life was turned upside down, but also somehow the right way up. To have been with him for those two years, to have seen things you could never have imagined, to do things you would never have imagined, but more than seeing the sick healed and demons cast out and hearing the teaching, more than all of that, to have loved him face to face, this man who made you feel alive, to know even when people were offended and leaving that this man had the words of eternal life. And then imagine what that week must have been like when the unthinkable happened. The one you loved was hung on a Roman cross and your whole world went black. And three days later, when they thought it was all over after one of the darkest nights of their life, just as the sun was rising, there he was, alive, risen, waiting for them on the beach. Jesus is with his disciples another 40 days before he's taken up into heaven, never to die again. And so began the church age, the age of the spirit, which we're living in now. After walking with Jesus, eating with him, conversing with him, how could the disciples not long to be with their friend again? The one they loved. From that point on, they would say, along with the apostle Paul, that they would rather depart and be with Christ. For that is better by far. Jesus says to those criticizing his disciples for not fasting, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. Notice how Jesus here uses the words mourning and fasting almost like interchangeably. Can they mourn now? No, but when I'm gone, then they will mourn then they will fast. 
seems to be that fasting and mourning are like two sides of the same coin. It's actually what we see in those Old Testament stories too, isn't it? When Jesus was with the disciples, God himself could be seen and touched. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the son of righteousness, the light of the world, with them in a robe and dusty sandals. This was a time for great feasting, which is exactly what his critics accused him of. This man comes eating and drinking, not doing the proper religious things like fasting. Jesus implies that there's an appropriate mourning that his people will feel until he comes again. And although we weren't there 2,000 years ago with him in person, we are included in the ones who miss Jesus, who ache to be with him. I think that part of the reason I haven't understood fasting is because my longing for Jesus to return, my mourning that he isn't here, my acute awareness that things are not okay around me, has been dampened by the day-to-day triviality of the world. I live an incredibly comfortable life by pretty much any standard in history. And I can see why Jesus refers to the deceitfulness of riches. It's hard for me to desperately long for Jesus to come and wrap up all history like a garment if my vision is clouded with the distracting and the trivial and the mundane. Instagram, gin and tonics, biscuits, online shopping. All of these things are blessing until I turn them, turn to them for comfort that they promise but can't deliver. This book, A Hunger for God uh, by John Piper, is really good. I actually got it because someone was getting rid of some books And I saw the title, A Hunger for God, and I thought, yeah, that looks great. (laughs) That looks attractive. Then I got home, and at the bottom it says, Desiring God Through Fasting and Prayer. And I was like, oh. (laughs) And then I put it on my shelf, and I didn't pick it up till I was preparing for this, which really just shows how much I had to learn about fasting (laughs) and still have to learn about fasting. But anyway, in this book, um, Piper talks about longing for Jesus to return. And he talks about how fasting isn't a command like prayer, or scripture, or communion, but it is a statement of what will seem normal for those who love the bridegroom and miss him. In Luke 18, Jesus describes those who cry to him day and night. And then Piper says, if the cry itself is not there, why would one even think of expressing it with fasting? And I thought, bingo, if I'm not cultivating a deep hunger, allowing myself to ache for Jesus, for ache for the return of Jesus, I'm not going to look for ways to deepen and awaken and express that hunger. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, wait a second, <laughs> we've just been singing about all these riches that we have in Jesus, life to the full, We're told to rejoice without ceasing. We have Christ on the inside of us. Didn't he go so that he could give us his spirit and we could be with him always? 
how can you tell me that I should be fasting out of some overflow of mourning? Well, I imagine it's a bit like being in a long-distance relationship. If you were in a long-distance relationship and it was going really well, and you felt that you were really connecting and you were enjoying the times you spent together on the phone or Zoom, wouldn't it be the case that the more in love you felt, the more happy you were to be in the relationship, the more your longing would increase? It would feel that all your conversations, as lovely as they were in and of themselves, were a shadow of the better things to come when you could be with them fully. Isn't this what Paul expresses when he says in 2 Corinthians, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord? I think it's as simple as this, in a way. Things will not be okay until we are with the bridegroom. And so we fast. The more we love him, the more the things of the world will grow strangely dim and we will fast. The more we resist becoming numb to the not okayness around us, the more we will fast. The final prayer of the Bible, the very penultimate verse, is the heart cry of the people of God, the ones who love him. It says, come, Lord Jesus. This has challenged me so much in preparation for this because I've realised that I can read the really quite regular expressions of the longing of the return of Christ in the New Testament in the letters of Paul and Peter and others as like a concern that they had but that I don't really need to be concerned with. It's like, that's, that's the problem, surely? <laughs> Um, just some examples of what I'm talking about. Romans 8. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption. Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a saviour. 1 Corinthians. So that you're not lacking any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 1. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. This is the perspective behind all of the New Testament instructions and encouragements. Eager waiting. Their eyes were like fixed on Jesus. No wonder Paul says it doesn't matter if I'm in prison or if I'm not in prison. All that matters is Christ. I could not say that if I was in prison. <laughs> It's because his eyes were fixed on that day and just everything else faded away. I feel provoked to see my earthly circumstances through this lens and to fast from that place. Now, I, I think it is a biblical thing to fast in difficult circumstances, um, to fast. I think it's an appropriate response in all sorts of situations. Uh, unanswered prayer, sickness, suffering, crisis, mystery. I think it's a godly thing to turn to fasting in those situations. I'm not saying the only thing that we should be thinking about when we're fasting is um, 
the return of Christ. But isn't the natural end point of the awareness in the heart of a Christian that things are not okay to long for his return and to pray, come Lord Jesus, would you come and make this right? Not just this situation, but once and for all. Okay, next question then. Why not eating? Why should my longing for Jesus to return cause me to skip lunch? And how do I actually do it? Like, what does it actually look like? Because we don't see lots of examples in the New Testament of how long and what should we fast from and what should we do while we're fasting? I don't believe that it's the act of not eating in itself that changes us. It's not like um, taking cod liver oil, like kind of unpleasant experience. You hope it's doing good somehow. (laughs) The fasting is not the beneficial thing in and of itself. That's not the end point. I haven't eaten. Great. But rather fasting helps us and changes us to the extent that it takes our hand and leads us to that place of prayer that we heard about last week, to our Father who is in secret, who sees in secret. Have you ever thought about fasting as a sort of like hunger strike? Like if I can just really prove to God that I'm really serious about this thing by not eating, maybe he'll, he'll do what I want. Bit of a paraphrase, but that's sometimes been my understanding. Fasting isn't a hunger strike, it's a doorway into deeper prayer. And it's prayer that moves the heart and the hand of God. Those who have fasted before, which is many of us in this room, won't need me to tell you that fasting causes intense physical hunger. It's in the place of prayer that we allow that physical hunger to give language and utterance to our spiritual hunger for Jesus. Fasting from food is both an expression of my longing for Jesus and fuel for that hunger when I sense the cares of the world growing up around me like weeds. We need constantly reorienting to that perspective that we see in the writers of the New Testament that Jesus says we will have. We need constantly reorienting to that. And it's fasting is really just a gift, a tool to help us do that. I used to play the violin, um, really not very well, I might add. And if you hadn't played violin in a week or so, which was frequent for me, which might explain why I wasn't very good at it, to be honest, um, it would go slightly flat because the strings would like slightly loosen. And to tune it, I would use a tuning fork. Anyone ever seen one of those? It's basically just like a piece of metal that's a certain shape that's tuned to the perfect note that you need. And you just bash it on something and it rings out that note and then you can tune the violin according to that note. People who actually play the violin can just do it by ear, but (laughs) that's not me. Um, So you can kind of adjust everything else back to that, that perfect note. Fasting is like a tuning fork. It's a simple tool that we can employ to retune us when we go a bit flat. And 
tune us back to that perspective offered to us in Scripture. If all I did was just bash a tuning fork and listen to it, that's not doing much good. <laughs> and in the same way, if I just fast, <laughs> but I'm not doing anything with it, then that's not doing me much good. And I look back to some of the fasts I've done where I would just spend the whole time trying to distract myself. I like sleep, watch TV, <laughs> count down the hours. I'm like, that's just like bashing a tuning fork. If I let it take me to that place of prayer, I think that's where I would have felt that my heart was changing. Practically, there are all kinds of examples of fasting in the Bible um, and in church history and in this room. I know people in this church have fasted for seven days, 21 days, sometimes 40 days at a time with no food at all. I also know that there are people in this room who, for medical reasons, are unable to fast for more than a few meals at a time. There are no instructions on how long to fast for or how often. We're simply told to do it for God and not for the attention of man, which is a constant allure to us, which Jesus knows. If you're new to fasting, if this is something you've not done before, maybe it's been a little while, and you know that it would be possible and healthy for you to not eat, perhaps pick a day during this month of prayer and try fasting until dinner. Then, if you found that helpful, try building up to slightly longer. The goal is not to go for longer. Remember, fasting is not the end in itself. Perhaps you could try fasting a day a week during the last couple of days of our month of prayer. Or I've heard of a home group who are fasting together on Thursdays and doing a Zoom call at lunchtime to pray together. Perhaps you could suggest that. There is um, a page on the Grace Connection website. If you go to graceconnection.co.uk forward slash fasting with all sorts of um, sort of advice and tips on fasting. So if you're interested in like learning a little bit more about how to do it, what to do, um, definitely head there. When you're fasting, perhaps use your lunch break to pray for specific things, but also prayers, like pray prayers that awaken that longing for Jesus, to know him more and to long for his return. That has been my recent experience of fasting, a place of like spiritual reset, as um, Julia actually says in, that, um, in our prayer booklet. In our passage today, Jesus says, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I know that the greatest reward that the Father can give me is to love Jesus more and to long for Jesus more. As C.S. Lewis said, our greatest havings are wantings. Let's join with the prayer of the penultimate verse of the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm going to invite Hannah up now. I think it'd be great for us to just spend some moments now lifting our eyes to Jesus again and then we'll um, see what he wants to do amongst us for the last few minutes. <laughs>